0: What's to become of Beirut's forgotten castle? Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you guys know where the castle is. Does anyone know where the castle is? Just a show of hands. One person, maybe. Muhammad showed it to you. (laughs) Okay, does anyone know where the castle is without Muhammad literally taking you there? That's great. No one knows. See, this actually, it's -hmm. the whole story. Mm -hmm. There's actually a subheading in the piece, Divorced from its surroundings. Yes which I think says it all. Mm -hmm. If you guys know where Nahar is, beneath the Nahar, it's literally just further north between Nahar and the sea. Mm -hmm. It's standing. You can't access. There's just a wall left today. Yeah. But you have to go find it. Kind of, yeah. So I actually went to find it before they put those uh, plaques on to Mm -hmm. explain what it was. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think people really cared that this was the remainings of a castle. Mm-hmm. What took you to write this piece? Um, well, so it,
1: just the way it started is I, I was looking for stamps because I was doing some paperwork and stuff in downtown Beirut. And then I, I just looked everywhere for anyone who was selling, but I ended up finding this, I don't know, this basically relic or giant ruin in kind of behind the Nahar building, behind Fosh Street. Um, and I just tweeted about it and then I think you and I interacted a bit a little and then I was like hmm, I wonder and I, I went on a deep dive and um, okay what is this castle oh there's some nice photos about it so from the Bonfields collection um, it used to occupy a central um, you know location on the sea it basically dominated the landscape back in the day but I, I hadn't heard of it from before actually I I was cleaning out my drive um, maybe a few months ago, and then I, I just happened to notice that, oh, I do have a picture of the, of the remains from like 2014, I just didn't know what it was.
0: So you had taken a photo of the remains? I
1: thought it was like some ruined Byzantine thing, um, and that's sort of part of the story, but so I, I went on a deep dive because, I mean, by then I'd been like a month at L'Oreal today and, you know, you always have to like find the next big story or something. And it got a, a lot of great reception on Twitter. So I was like, why not write something about it? And I, and I knew about it also a little bit just by looking at all these maps uh, of Beirut um, from the 1800s. So I did have an idea, but I had never, like, I, I just assumed it was completely demolished and just gone. But um, what, happened, what ended up happening was um, I, I, I kind of got in contact with one of the archaeologists who uh, dug it up. She was part of a whole team. But um, actually, she was probably the first person to notice that there was something, because in my story I write, they were looking for Phoenician ruins, and they ended up finding, they found Phoenician ruins, a little bit close to where the castle is, but they also found all these medieval ruins. Um,
0: So So you you really just, you Mm -hmm. were interested on your own terms, Mm -hmm. you went to find it. And I'm the only person who engaged you online about it. Kind of. We're the only two people that care about this castle. Yeah. So I'm going to share these photos with the audience. Maybe I can pass them around. There's three photos. One of them is the castle in the late 1880s. Mm. So 140 years ago. Yeah. One of the photos as well is what Muhammad does best, maps. Mm. I love your maps. Yeah. It's an old map. It's, it's
1: a map from 1876. It's it's by this Danish guy, uh, Lodvoid, Julius Lodvoid. It's called the Abdelhamid map because the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, he commissioned it. And Julius uh, Lodvoid made it. Uh, and basically, it was a map that was kind of used to... So there's this thing called the Garat Plan, one of the earliest plans. It was sort of to build a new port in Beirut because... In the, the mid-1800s, you know, they dug up the Suez Canal and there was just more traffic. And the Beirut merchants here, they were like, why don't we, you know, try to get in on it? So they were like, they kind of commissioned a, a plan to expand the port. And this is sort of, well, this is sort of towards the end where, why the castle was demolished. Because it was just standing in
0: the middle of a very strategic location. So, so there's another photo as well of what it looks like right now. Mm-hmm. And it's just... Literally a wall that remains. A wall, but
1: the base of the castle is perfectly preserved, according to the archaeologist, Dr. Patricia right. Antaki. Uh, it's, it's basically, so basically it's uh, the crusader base. Hmm. And the castle, so it was built three different times. So the first time it was the crusaders. Second time it was the Mamluks. Well, and in between it got demolished. And then the third time the Ottomans, there was some Ottoman basha named Cezar Basha. He demolished it and rebuilt something on top. But the base has always been there. It's always been Crusader, and actually, when they were digging it up in the mid '90s, so um, uh, so just for context, in the in the '90s there was a the whole excavate Downtown Beirut was entirely uh, was an excavation site, uh, and um, you know they excavated the souks, they excavated the surroundings, and there was something called the Biblos Cinema. Uh, uh, it was kind of demolished, and then. They started digging underneath, you know, for, ar- for archaeological purposes, like I said earlier, for Phoenician ruins. What they ended up finding first was Roman
0: and Byzantine columns. So I'll interrupt you there. Yeah. This crusader castle mm. goes back to the 12th century. Yes. Okay. Now, Beirut, oh, sorry, Lebanon mm-hmm. has plenty of castles. Yes. You go to Tripoli in the north, mm-hmm. stands out. Mm-hmm. Saida, you can access it. Yes. Spel, mm-hmm. All those castles are easy to find. Mm-hmm. Why is Beirut in the, in the state that it is right now? Mm-hmm. Is it simply a matter of urban planning under Ottoman rule mm-hmm. that made it sort of part of the city mm-hmm. rather than on the coast? Because it strikes me as odd that it, this otherwise impressive castle yeah. is completely detached from the sea. So so it was on the coast. It was basically sticking out in between the, la-
1: in between the mainland and... Um, and the sea, uh, sort, and there was like a moat and like a, a place where the ships would park and stuff. But in 1890, they, they basically expanded the port. They reclaimed the land in front of the castle. They demolished the castle. They reclaimed all the land in front of it. And they basically built what, was what we now call the old uh, basin. Uh, there's, there's, I think, five basins now at the port, uh, kind of like incrementally from like 1890 until the 2000s. Uh, the port kept on expanding initially in downtown, where basically, so basically everything past Far Street sort of is reclaimed land. Um, basically, I, I wish I had a map in front of me, but uh, I can point to it. But everything between where the Zaha Hadid building is today uh, in downtown, it used to be uh, a Khan, Khan Antun Bey. Basically, from that point to the castle, to at least the beginning of Jemayzeh, where the Keteib headquarters is, that was all reclaimed. Uh, and that's the,
0: reclaimed under Ottoman rule. Uh,
1: it was a French company who did it, and they commissioned a, uh, the Ottomans commissioned the French company on the advice of Beirut merchants,
0: who yeah. Cool. So the castle was just strategically located in the, in a way, in the wrong place Basically. while Beirut was expanding. Mm-hmm. So um, you mentioned this briefly in the article that there's no pushback towards land reclamation or, for that matter, the destruction of the castle. Locals seem kind of, in a way, they don't care.
1: Yeah, so that was the impression I got from um, Jens Hossman. He's a professor at University of Toronto. He did um, this really amazing book about, you know, the transformation of Beirut at the turn of the century. And he kind of looked up a lot of this stuff in the Ottoman archives and in newspaper archives that most people, at least from these sources, didn't really seem like, oh, no, we're demolishing a castle. It's, it's, um, you know, it's super old. There was no, like, protest or, or pushback against it. Yeah. Uh, but he did say something about a French engineer um, kind of lamenting, oh, no, we, we can't just destroy history. A French engineer working on the site. But that was basically it. I, I mean, I would have to go back in time to figure. I wish. Yeah, that
0: would be nice. So if you were to predict <laughs> why this city loses its castle and mm. no one really cares, mm. is it because the port is so much more important and that there's a economic gain that's sort of Overtaking any nostalgia for a derelict castle. Because it's, it's weird. Mm-hmm. Beirut loses its castle long before war. This is an urban planning decision.
1: That's something I want to find out. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, if a newspaper doesn't write about it, that doesn't always necessarily reflect the sentiment of the people. I, mm-hmm. I would really like to dig it up if I have the chance again. But um, I would hope so. Um, but yeah, I mean, at the time Beirut kind of was going on, undergoing a huge transformation. It had started way back in the mid 1800s, but it was kind of continuously growing from like 1840 until like there was a huge disruption in the First World War when there was a blockade on the city. And that, of course, led to the famine and stuff. Uh, but yeah, there was like constant growth. I, I wish I would know what, what the people, I mean, I would be upset. I don't know everyone else back in the day, but that's, that's something to
0: dig up, definitely. When you go today, and that, mm. that third photo that's being passed around, the more recent photo, mm-hmm. what is it that you're looking at? That that wall, yeah, with metals and weeds and sort of derelict condition.
2: So what, what is so that? So the
1: more so the more you go down, the more you know more about the castle. The more you up, the more it gets kind of strange because there's so much layering. Mm. There's, like I said, Ottoman, modern '60s building, um, and part of the part of the cliff where the castle was stood on initially.
0: Oh the actual yeah. cliff is there. Yeah, You
1: can see the limestone and stuff. Oh. So that's sort of what you see at the top, but as you go down and I think there's a way you can go around I guess you can sneak in but it's it's open to the public anyway so.
0: I wouldn't recommend yeah. that cuz you can fall easily in that. Yeah, you need yeah. A f-
1: you need like I mean you need to wear hiking shoes and stuff and yeah. you need like to be with someone else and it's
0: so the reason I say this I've done that. Okay. Yeah, and okay. I didn't have the right shoes on. There's a stairwell that mm-hmm. you can easily just fall yeah. into the basin of yeah. the castle.
1: Yeah. So basically the part where it's more close to Fosh Street, uh, that's easier to get into. Yeah. The other side where it's more like there's like a mini highway and stuff, that's very, yeah, you need one. There's a lot of weeds um, in the nineties. They just poured weed killer all over the place. That's how they were able to kind of dig up uh, easily. But now if you want to go and look for it, it's, it kind of sucks because like you're going to get your pants ruined. You're going to get your shoes ruined. Um, but yeah, so there's two parts. There's like um, the, the part that's sort of sitting on what was the sea that's next to Fosh, And then in the back where Nahad is, that's the other part of the castle. You can, there's the stair, that's where the staircase is. Yeah. It leads into, into the thing. That's much harder and trickier to get into. So, and yeah, I wouldn't recommend it, of course. Yeah.
0: So in a way, this, the reason this castle mm. is in its current state is obviously due to urban planning gone wrong, civil war, mm-hmm. post-war sort of neglect. But is it fair to say that because this location was continuously demolished repeatedly Mm -hmm. long ago, up until Ottoman, Mm -hmm. sort of late Ottoman years, that in a way doesn't hold the same nostalgia? Because we look at Tripoli, Mm -hmm. we look at those other cities, we know what they look like. We we don't have to think much about it. Mm -hmm. Beirut, no one in the audience knows where it is. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's just because it's too new? The most recent version is just new it's not Mm -hmm. a castle the way we think of castles
1: yeah i that's a a hard question to answer i i wouldn't know for us i mean i have that nostalgia i i've i like ever since i was a kid like you know robin hood king arthur and stuff i like these things i've been to all the castles in lebanon i'm sure other people have that same uh sentiment but at the time when it was demolished i i didn't know what people if they were nostalgic about it or not. I do know that a lot of European um, uh like archaeologists who were coming into Beirut in the eighteen hundreds, they did have this nostalgia for the crusades. Not a nostalgia, but like a like a curiosity for them. And that's sort of why um a lot of studies were published in the eighteen hundreds about the crusaders' uh castles here and in Palestine and in Syria and stuff and Lebanon. So
0: the most interesting part of the article for me yeah. was knowing that 900 years ago mm-hmm. Salahuddin yeah. and is it Richard? And Richard
1: the Lionheart Richard yeah. The li- yeah, yeah
0: negotiating whether or not to tear it down basically yeah and Salahuddin gets his way mm. that the, if the crusaders were to return mm. the first thing he would do is knock down that castle yeah. so I guess 900 years ago that castle was at its prime
1: probably yeah and also you have to think of it this way after the crusades and like in the mid-Mamluk period and almost towards the 1800s sort of Beirut kind of loses its (coughs) central location as like a very important city it kind of gets overtaken by tripoli and saida and aki so kemen i don't know i feel like it was sort of in everyone's in the back of everyone's mind i'm guessing
0: i yeah now that castle where the port is today Mm -hmm. extending all the way to Cadentina. yeah the way i really got to know you was not through the castle, mm-hmm. even though that's how we got to know each other online. Yeah. In person, you mm-hmm. were writing extensively on Quarantina yeah. and its use. Yes, Long before it was Quarantina, mm-hmm. it was the quarantine. Yeah, And I think that's the way beyoud works. You can talk about one thing, mm-hmm. one location, and you can have so many stories attached. Mm-hmm. You wrote about a subject that I'm deeply interested in, and I've done my own episodes on it, I've written on it too late 1800s early 1900s beirut is growing Mm -hmm. a lot of regional refugees Mm -hmm. are finding their way to this city Mm -hmm. and between world war one and world war two there's an influx Mm -hmm. armenians Mm -hmm. are settling here greeks are coming Mm -hmm. from egypt and i didn't know this european jews Mm -hmm. were making their way to beirut Mm -hmm. this is something i didn't know until i read your piece I highly recommend it. I'll actually name it here. How Jewish refugees fleeing the Nazis found shelter in Beirut. I think this is my favorite piece that you've written. So I'm going to share these three photos. And I'll explain them as we speak. Thank you. It's a different era altogether.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <clears throat> it's the interwar period. Um, like you said a lot of refugees are settling in the area um not just uh you know Ar- you know Ar- the armenians and Greeks and and others but also in in northern Syria where kind of Antakya used to be uh it used to be called the Republic of Antakya and then it became the Hatay province now part of Turkey uh after the annexation a lot of greek orthodox uh people and armenians kind of also moved this is 19 i think 1938 so it's it, And then on on top of that, you know, there's all this uh, persecution by the Nazis against the Jews in Europe. And a lot of them are fleeing. Uh, Of course, we all know the story of the SS St. Louis. It's uh, a Jewish refugee ship that went initially to Cuba. They were refused entry. They tried to disembark at the the United States, also refused entry, and then Canada, nothing. So they had to go back to Europe, and I think around a quarter of them died in the Holocaust. And, And this is at a moment where, there's like a lot of refugee ships with Jewish people in them fleeing. A lot of them, uh, they end up going to places like China and Indonesia and the Dominican Republic because these are the few places that would accept them, at least in huge numbers. Other countries like the UK, like the US, they just wouldn't let them in. Uh, And one of those ships, it was on its way to Shanghai. And so China in, in, in the 30s, Accepted something like twenty thousand Jewish refugees, which is a lot more than most countries. They're on their way to Shanghai. They they initially a lot of them initially left from the Czech Republic, or what was then known as Czechoslovakia. So Hitler invades, he he conquers the Sudetenland, which is the German part of Czechoslovakia, and then he basically annexes the whole country. And a lot of Jews flee. They uh, the the two ships that come to Beirut, a lot of them are from from that area, and like some from Germany. They, the one I followed uh, for the article, it's the SS Frasula. That photo is actually
0: taken from the ship, the, from the ship mm-hmm. and it's a photo of the quarantine as uh, the ship is entering Beirut. Yes. So, so it's approaching there's Beirut. There's two
1: photos. There's a group photo of all the past, most of the passengers, at least. Well, no, there's 650, and I doubt that's all of them in that one picture, but a significant portion of the passengers. And then there's another one. Uh, from the ship of the port of Beirut. And you can kind of see the first uh, basin that I talked about earlier. It's the one with the, the A-frame um, warehouses. Anyways, so, yeah, so there was a photographer on the ship, him and his girlfriend uh, and her family. The girlfriend, her name is Marta Steiner. She died, I think, in 2019. She was
0: 107. So not to spoil the article, yeah. it's, it's not just a story about Lebanese Jews, mm-hmm. oh, sorry, European Jews mm-hmm. making their way to Lebanon. Mm-hmm. It's the story of a woman that mm-hmm. lived through modernity. Yeah. I mean, 107 years. Yeah. And she was here mm-hmm. in the 1930s. Yes. And just to emphasize, I didn't know this thanks to this article, 1,200 European Jews mm-hmm. made their way to Lebanon. Yes. Now, in comparison, mm-hmm. sorry to interrupt mm-hmm. Lebanon, local population, I checked the census in the 1930s, mm. there were 7,000 Lebanese Jews. Okay. So that's quite an increase. Mm-hmm. A 1,000 European Jews mm-hmm. making their way to Lebanon. What I appreciated about the article is that you focused in on French reluctance. Mm-hmm. It's not only Lebanese sort of concern. It's the French mm-hmm. trying to make this go away. Kind of, yeah. And the British too, mm-hmm. in Palestine, mm-hmm. trying to restrict quotas. Mm-hmm. So it's a ship of European Jews that are stuck yeah. in Beirut's quarantina.
1: Yeah, so what happens is they leave Europe through, like, a, a port in Romania, I think it's called uh, Selina, the port city, and then on the way to Shanghai, like, this illness breaks out, it's not really clear what kind of disease broke out, uh, and they, they try to dock in, I think, places in Turkey they're not allowed, they try to do it in Tripoli, also not allowed, and then Towards the end um, in Beirut, they they also signal to the port. Okay, we need people are sick. They should move. And this this one, I think Quaker missionary uh, Daniel Oliver, he actually advocates for them to be you know released and as like a middle ground solution, at least put them in the quarantine, which is where Carantina is today. It's where the Carantina hospital uh, used to be. Now it's a military base. The, the hospital kind of moved down one block, but whatever. Um, so as like a middle ground, at least on humanitarian grounds, let them. Uh, dock in, in the quarantine until we can find another solution. Another ship follows, uh, I think it's called, uh, not the SS, or SS I, I, it's in the article, I, I forget. Same same situation, people are very ill, they need uh, to be let in, so they're also let in, and I think the total becomes 1,250 1, uh, 1, refugees. And they, they're they supported by, I mean, Muslims chip in to support them while they're here, Christians and the uh, Jewish Community Council. Um, so the way it works is in Beirut, um, you know how we have like Dar al-Fatwa for the Sunnis and, and, you know, like, you know, these, these institutions that sort of take care of the religious uh, affairs. So in Lebanon, the Jewish Community Council kind of, um, it was sort of represented the Jewish community here. And yeah, so they, they kind of take care of, uh, a lot of people are shipping in Mostly it's like uh, private donations from these groups, yeah.
0: And this is pre-World War II. It's, a months month before. Oh, right. Yeah. A, a month before. Yeah. So you have European Jews fleeing Europe, mm-hmm. and they're being not allowed in most places. Yes. And really, by chance, Beirut opens its doors mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. European Jews. Mm-hmm. I think the story is fantastic. And I also like that, very quickly, it's Vichy, France. Yes, it's German-occupied France. Yeah, and you even mention it that there's a detention center installed in the mountains, yes, meant to restrict European Jewish movement in Lebanon. Yes, so it's the Lebanese that say no. Mm-hmm. And this is in the uh, 1939 or 1940,
1: I so think. So when, so basically, what happens is that France falls to the Nazis, the Vichy government is installed, and they kind of take care of all their like colonies abroad and mandates and stuff. They try to establish some kind of like concentration camp in the mountains not for the local Jewish population but for the European ones right. and of course the local Jewish population did feel threatened by this because you know, it's like a, so it's a, precedent, a very dangerous precedent what happens is there is local opposition to it but at the same time the British, specifically the Australians they invade Beirut and they basically take over the mandate and they basically give it um, they jointly administer it with the French Free Army and this came in, it's another interesting fact, the French Free Army, they had a lot of volunteer soldiers who were Holocaust survivors. And I, I wish I brought this picture with me. There's this one Holocaust survivor who basically fled France to Morocco and ended up in Lebanon. And I did post this on Twitter. It's, there's a picture of him next to the Manara in Beirut, where the old one, and the Manara in the background. And then there's another picture of him when he was in the French Free Army. Um, Walking down the the old Laytona Street, it wasn't a bay, uh, with his like army buddies. So, yeah, it's very it's a very it's a very niche period that most people, I guess, not not that they haven't focused on it. It's just I, I I'm I'm glad that yeah. I, and I discovered this randomly by just researching about Carantina, and oh, then this
0: was, this was out of that research. So
1: it it didn't go into the thesis because it wasn't really directly related. The thesis is just about you know rebuilding mm-hmm. Carantina after the blast, but it's a nice little you know tidbit. Um, and then, I don't know, I, at the time, I think this is when there was a boat leaving Tripoli that unfortunately sank. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, there's all these horrific stories about, you know, refugee ships not being allowed today. And unfortunately, uh, these, you know, so I, I kind of felt that there was a there was like a um, certain audience or a certain like time to reflect on what's going on. But in the past, yeah. So that's this how, kind of how
0: the story came about. And remind me, the fate of the ship is that it sets, it reaches Spain, or it ends up... The ship itself gets sank uh,
1: uh, on, like, the western side of Spain. Western side of Spain. The so Nazis, it actually left yeah.
0: Beirut during World War II.
1: It left Beirut empty uh, because it's more. it was actually a cargo ship. It wasn't really a passenger ship. Uh, and it gets uh, sunk by the Nazis on the, like, western side of Spain where, where Portugal is and stuff. Uh, the actual passengers, I tr- did try to look up what happened to them. So after World War II starts, uh, the British start letting in uh, like volunteer conscripts from like, uh, the Jewish population. And then at the same time, a lot of people like, start crossing into... So what happens is there's another ship called the Tiger Lily. It picks up the passengers who were in the quarantine, and they were in the quarantine for about a month and a half. And then it takes them to Palestine. The passengers themselves, I did kind of look up um, in the Holocaust Museum. They kind of keep track of where all the passengers went and stuff. A lot of them moved to Australia or the United States like Marta Steiner. Uh, and that's, she moved to California in 1947 with her husband. Um, the guy who took the photographs, he joins the British Army. And yeah, that's basically... I about, all I have about him but um, They're really great photographs that, you know, because it's just so hard to find photographs about stuff you're writing because, you know, long form journalism, it just gets so boring when you're just reading and reading and reading. So to have to fa- like, to actually find these photos, it was just amazing because, you know, not only was I writing about this for a whole month, but also like to actually get a visual, you know, um, thing from it, it was, yeah, it was amazing.
0: Um, There's even a really, uh, a, a, a Intense moment in the piece where I think it's the ship captain Mm -hmm. kills Mm -hmm. another captain in the quarantine. Yeah. And the passengers feel lucky that they're going to get because this is going to get, get, yeah, yeah, that they're stuck in Beirut longer. Yeah. That they won't be kicked out
1: because there was going to, they were launching an investigation about what happened. So it was sort of a lucky break for them because for a while it was just really unknown. And there was one visitor. Uh, who is working for the Palestine Post, he goes to visit them in the quarantine. They're not allowed outside. It's sort of like a, not a studio prison, but kind of like, you know, how in COVID-19, we couldn't leave our homes and stuff. They were really sick and they kind of had to be quarantined. But at some point it was like, okay, they're better now. What happens? But yeah, so someone from the, a journalist from the Palestine Post visits them. And I think he says, he writes something like, um, like they're like left to their fate or their, their fate is unknown. And it's, it's, it's scary because, you know, if they go back to europe they 'll be killed, uh, and they're you know in a place where they don't really know much about and uh, and one of the pictures it's actually very nice someone sends them a postcard from i think Brazil or something and they they, they the i don't know how letters work today, but it's like the two the p o box i don't know it's basically says the ship and then it gets delivered to the quarantine so I thought that was very cool
0: um, yeah. what I, what i really Appreciated from the articles. It's a, it's a small chapter. Mm-hmm. It's a window during the French mandate where Lebanon is more hospitable yes. to European Jews mm-hmm. than the U.S., than South America, Cuba. Mm-hmm. All these ships are getting rejected mm-hmm. all over the place. They're getting rejected along the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. They get rejected in Tripoli, mm-hmm. but they find shelter in Beirut. Yes, and they write about how they feel better mm-hmm. in detention in Beirut than anywhere they've been. Yeah. And that also extends post-World War II. It's not in the article, but it's a segue to the next article. So you have an increase in Jewish population in Lebanon. Yes. Pre-World War II, but mm-hmm. it's European Jewry. Mm-hmm. Post-1948, mm-hmm. post-Israel, Lebanon's Jewish population grows rapidly. Mm-hmm. And I checked the numbers again just to make sure. The numbers go from roughly 7,000 mm-hmm. to 17,000. Yeah. So these are Syrian and Iraqi Jews mm-hmm. that prefer coming to Lebanon, yeah. then Europe, mm-hmm. then to Israel, and then onwards. Mm-hmm. That small chapter, I think, 19, late 1940s, early 1950s, is really that small window of time that plays a big role mm-hmm. in the next piece. Hamad al-Shama, because he's a talented writer... He wrote an extensive piece, and it ended up in the sports... Let me get the name right. It's not in Lorient du Jour. It's in the... What is it? The Routledge, Routledge Handbook? Yeah. This is... Yeah, the Routledge Handbook of Sport in the Middle East. It's a chapter. Mm-hmm. It's really a case study on one Lebanese Jew, whose name is David Saad. Yes. Now, I don't know why this stuff happens. I was interviewed by his brother, Yeah. Gad Saad. And I never made the connection. Oh, okay. I had no idea. It's the same family. This is maybe seven or eight years ago. Mm -hmm. I was on his podcast Mm -hmm. talking about this history. And then you're writing a story about his brother. Yeah. About his story. And here we are talking about two different Lebanese Jews. Yeah. It's it's a strange connection. I'm going to share all these photos at once because I think it wouldn't make sense otherwise. It's a collection of photos. Yeah. From a very obscure uh, niche sport, judo, <laughs> in yeah, Lebanon, judo. in the 1970s mm-hmm. Olympics competition, and one guy named David Saad. I'll just put them in one go. The piece is not really uh, meant to celebrate this history. On the contrary, it's made. It's meant, I think, to reflect
1: yeah. on many things and shine a light on David, who is a very talented athlete.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. So this this piece. Uh, I was as Lebanese as anyone. The story of David Saad, Lebanon's last Jewish Olympian. Mm -hmm. It's a story that begins in 1976. Mm -hmm. So it's one year into the civil war where there's a Lebanese Jew abroad Mm -hmm. competing on Lebanon's behalf. Yes. So let me start there. We can go back afterwards. Mm -hmm. We'll go back in time. But that moment, was it odd back then for Lebanese in the diaspora to do this? Kind of, yes. It was actually... Uh, so Lebanon, for context,
1: has a, I mean, recent history of just kind of utilizing diaspora uh, members from abroad, the U.S., Brazil, uh, et cetera, to compete on its behalf in the Olympics. And usually it's athletes who, un, for one reason or another, couldn't qualify for, like, for example, the U.S. team or the Brazil team or the Germany team. I don't know. So this has kind of become normal ever since, I think, the 2000s. And uh, Dr. Daniel Reike, who edited the book, He's done extensive research on this. Um, but this one, it's, it's pretty niche because it was sort of... Diaspora recruitment wasn't really a thing, at least in Lebanon at the time. And he, I think, would probably qualify as probably one of the first to be recruited from abroad. But unlike, I mean, unlike today, it's mostly people who are second generation or third generation Lebanese. He's, he's first generation. He was born and raised in Lebanon. But what happens is, you know, Lebanon's in the middle of a civil war. It's year one. Um, you can't basically cross from... I don't know, or let alone whatever, which <clears throat> two of the assets, I'll mention them later, kind of come from. Um, the airport's always <clears throat> closed or it's closed for like a really long period and then reopened. So, you know, Lebanon, you know, there was a chance that Lebanon couldn't send a team to the Montreal Olympics, the Summer Olympics. Uh, something kind of similar happens a few months earlier for the Winter Olympics in Innsbruck in Austria, where they just can't send anyone from Lebanon. I think four people had qualified. They can't send anyone. So They, faridara, they can't
0: because the airport the is The airport's closed. Yeah.
1: Or like, let's say I live in Saida and I can't get there. Right. For whatever reason, there's a, there's a checkpoint, whatever, or, or there's a gunman, I don't know, or there's a little skirmish. And when I come back, how, am I guaranteed that I'm going to go back home? So it's, 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 it's a lot to take in. So for the Innsbruck uh, Winter Olympics... Uh, they can't send anyone. So basically four people are stuck in Lebanon. They can't compete, which is huge because this is your career. So Farida Rahme, who was a skier, um, she lived in Frankfurt. She qualified earlier and she was basically the only person to represent Lebanon for the Winter Olympics that year. I think since then we've had around two plus uh, like, uh, you know, athletes. But like for once, we only had one person, which is which is crazy. Um, and there was a, actually speaking of the Washington Post, there was a Washington Post article about her from the time and no lone athlete represents Lebanon or something. Um, and I did try to get in contact with her and I forget her name. She's a runner for Lebanon. I um, I think her name is Hasizbitte. She's trying to get in contact with her best We're looking if anyone knows Farida uh, Rahmi in Germany. Um, but yeah. So that sort of the so the same predicament kind of arises uh, for the Summer Olympics in Montreal, and this is back when the Olympics, Winter and uh, and Summer would be hosted in the same year. Now they're
0: two years apart. But so just for context, so so it's the first year Lebanon is participating mm-hmm. during the obviously during a civil yes. war. Uh you cannot send participants mm-hmm. here. But just for context, it's 1976, mm-hmm. and this is where maybe the backstory kicks in. Mm-hmm. David Saad is not sort of easily representing Lebanon. Mm-hmm. He's in a way, kind of reluctantly representing kind of. Lebanon. Mm-hmm. So let's build up to his experiences here mm-hmm. and why he leaves.
1: Yeah, so he left, I think about two years earlier. So the, in Lebanon, it's, uh, if you play a sport, you have to basically answer to whatever federation, like the football federation, basketball federation. For him, it was the judo federation. And he was heavily discriminated against by the judo federation for being Jewish. Uh, specifically, like uh, in international competitions, he would not be allowed to play against whatever country or whatever. And this is it kind of hinders your career as an athlete. Like if I can't compete uh, and move on and whatever, uh, you know, then I don't have a career. So and it's not he's sort of like it's, it's not because he can't beat or he can't play or he can't um, win. Um, there's some Lorient articles in the I'm circulating that shows that he's number one and and he shared these with me he still has them clipped and stuff that you know he was number one in this competition local competition here and that he, w- he was qualifying for these international competitions
0: but so this, he, he ranked first in Lebanon yes but he was being discriminated against despite ranking first yes, yes. so h- how would he participate so either they would
1: tell him not to or when he at some point in 74 he moves to France and this um, and then the, there's like competitions in France, there's the world judo. Um, I think it's called the world judo competition or the world judo championship in Austria. Uh, and there's no one to represent Lebanon. This is, this is before the civil war by a little bit. So he kind of convinces them and him and his friend, um, I think, uh, he was also a big judo player. He's a Shab, um, I forget his name. They sort of, okay, he's not going to play against an Arab country. He can represent this there. And, um. And so he does...
0: Uh, Sorry, he a stop playing as long as he's not playing against... An Arab country, yeah. So the restriction was which countries he could compete against as a Lebanese participant. So
1: that's how it started. Like, you can't... Like, they wouldn't let him compete. Uh, because in... Le- and basically, how it goes is you, you compete with regionally with countries in your, like, circuit. And then you compete, like, with Japan or whatever. But that, it usually starts there. Um, but yeah, they just wouldn't let him because... so. Uh, And he told me it probably had something to do with, you know, they don't want to exasperate tensions with whatever country or something. Like if a Jewish person beats this person from this Arab country, this will cause like, you know, whatever trouble for Lebanon or something. But this is discrimination point blank. And this kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier. So yes, there's an increase in the Jewish population after 48 in Lebanon. Um, A lot of them don't get the passport. They end up leaving, I think, in 58. Uh, but relatively speaking, there wasn't that much discrimination against Jews between 48 and 67 after 67. Uh, there's like a lot of discrimination and like Jewish people are targeted. Like, uh, David's father who's I think still alive. Albert, um, he used to own a business in, in downtown. Um, uh, his store was targeted, uh, by like, um, um, people who want bribes, like protection money kind of thing, um, racketeering, uh, David was constantly pulled over by police because his ID... So on the old IDs, right, yeah. it basically says your religion. So Sunni, Maronite, Shia. Uh, and so in Lebanon, it's, it says Israelite.
0: So just for, yeah. just to make it mm-hmm. even worse than mm-hmm. that, uh, the old... Not just IDs, I think mm-hmm. every document mm-hmm. uh, post-independence, mm-hmm. uh, they inherited the wrong terminology from the French mandate. Yes, So it's Israelite mm-hmm. in French translated in arabic israeli yes rather than musawi musawi was the original version mm-hmm. meaning follower of moses mm-hmm. so you have this imagine david saad israeli
1: yeah, and th- what he what, what david told me is that a lot it would be it would be the same cops and they would know but they would do it anyway because they can just get away with it and that's
0: so it's just a mis- trouble, yeah. it's a it's the wrong translation from mm-hmm. french y- israelite which y- is not israeli no 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 it's it's hebrew israelites but
1: also there is a bit of bigotry in that too because if it's the same cops constantly doing it and they know who you are and they know you live wherever and it's happened before it does show us a bit like not a bit a lot of bigotry so
0: so he he leaves lebanon in that right before the civil war Mm -hmm. i think 1974 yes he goes to france Mm -hmm. the war begins. 1976, the Olympics are happening. Mm-hmm. How does he make that decision to represent Lebanon? So
1: basically, there's no one... In Lebanon, it's really hard to get people to fly out. Like I said, it's just either... It's a lot of logistical issues. So they start reaching out to people in the diaspora. So, And I kind of did look this up. One of them is Elia who was in Montreal. Um, he, he is also a judo player. They reach out to him to represent them. There's Ahmad and I think his brother's name is Basil Fadul in Buffalo. They were, I think, wrestlers or boxers. I, I, I forget. Um, and I, yeah, they were in Buffalo uh, at the time. They also reach out to them. They're from Dahle. They, they were there a year before, but then they had to go to college and stuff. And they just happened to be there. And the Olympic Committee kind of knew about them. And they, the Olympic Committee also kind of knew about David being through the Judo Federation and stuff. Um, being in Montreal. So they kind of like get all these people who are living abroad just to represent Lebanon because I think the cutoff or... Because in the Olympics, there's a certain like deadline where you have to register athletes. Lebanon missed that deadline, but they were given an extension anyway. And that's sort of where they had to improvise a little bit. And for David, you know, it's it's to reach the Olympics and stuff, uh, to be taken... So basically having the opportunity taken away from you in the beginning... Uh, and at some point he kind of was kicked out of the Judah Federation for being Jewish in 74 to to have that taken away from you and then to have it offered to you it was was sort of like it was a good opportunity to advance as an athlete so So after
0: getting kicked out mm -hmm. leaving the country Mm -hmm. he represents Lebanon he saves their ass basically he saves their ass yeah so he's deciding to represent Mm -hmm. Lebanon even though this country treated him unfairly and he says that in the piece Mm -hmm. but that He's still going to do it because he feels Lebanese.
1: Yes. And also, uh, just to advance, how that came in, spoiler, he does also qualify for, he becomes Canadian and he does qualify for the Canadian team. But as an athlete, like, the Olympics, it's just, you know, it's the Oscars, basically, yes. of, oopsie, of sports. So uh, it was really an opportunity he couldn't pass. And, you know, it, it kind of, the discrimination doesn't end there. Like, even when... The they they're in the like the dormitories and stuff. The head of the delegation kind of like 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 isolates him and tries to like shun him and stuff. So it's it's really fucked up that hey he's doing you a favor, but at the same time we're still gonna treat him like a second class citizen, which is just, you know it's horrible. So, um yeah.
0: I have a very strange question to ask you. Mm-hmm. What made you find him? So because this is not somebody so, we ever talk about. No, you you made extensive effort to find kind that. Of, yeah. What, what so, took you to that uh, So
1: lean, who's my cousin, she saw Gatsad on another podcast oh. and he mentioned, me, mentioned his brother. So at the time I was like, Oh, I have to find this person. And I think this was 2017. So three plus six years ago. So I just looked everywhere and he doesn't have, he didn't have Facebook or Insta or Twitter or whatever. The only thing I could find is like a YouTube channel of him. Um, of, talking brother, about, of David. Of David talking about some, because he, he's, I think, a computer, he has a PhD in computer science. And he was talking about something very technical. And I think I commented on the video. I was like, hey, can I interview you, please, for something I'm writing? <laughs> and he replied, I think, within an hour on the comment box. wow So that's kind of how it happened. And so the initial interview was it, was, it was for a class I was doing with Daniel Reike, uh, I think this class is called politics of sport. It, and I wrote a paper about it and then 2 years later he was like why not turn that into a chapter. And then I had a second interview with him which was more extensive and stuff. And sorry
0: this was a remote interview?
1: Yeah, he's in, he's in California now, so it, uh, and he hasn't been back since, so.
0: It's a very particular story about mm-hmm. the last sort of the last time Lebanese Jews were representing Lebanon yeah. on a bigger stage. Mm-mm. I had no idea this happened. And then after being interviewed by his brother, mm-hmm. it's funny that it's just, I, w- I would never have known. I just saw the last name, Saad. Mm-hmm. Saad is so common. It's very generic, yeah. So generic, <laughs> yeah. I assume, no, it's just, you know, mm-hmm. another, no, it's his brother. Mm-hmm.
1: What ends up happening is he does get the Canadian passport. He tries out for the, uh, the Judo team. He starts from the beginning because it's all about rankings. In Lebanon, you have the rankings and stuff. In Canada, you have to start from scratch. He goes all the way up and then he, he kind of qualifies for the Canadian team for 1980. And it's in Moscow. But the US and the UK and Europe and Canada, they decide to boycott the, the Moscow Olympics because the, Russia, uh, the USSR had invaded Afghanistan earlier that uh, year. And what ends up happening is kind of
0: politics sort of destroys
1: his any Sorry, athletic... The,
0: the Canadians are then boycotting.
1: So he can't, he can't go to the Olympics, which really sucks. Oh, wow. This was so, so he... Sort of his second chance. And it's a very interesting story about a person qualifying for two, two different teams from two different countries. Making that, it both yeah. times. Yeah. And this is back... So I think in 84, they, they lifted some kind of rule that, you know, professional athletes can participate. But before that, it was all amateurs, basically. Mm. Not amateurs, but like not someone, um, like not LeBron James, basically. you know. But, so it's, it's, it's a very interesting point in history. And then they also kind of established rules about if you're from a country and you participate, how much time do you have to wait? And I think for David, it was two years or one cycle or something. So it's, it was, he was very lucky, but also unlucky in that sense that, you know, just politics gets in the way. But what ends up happening is he kind of retires. He does his PhD. He gets into tennis, which is great. Um, But yeah, I mean, uh, when I spoke to him, uh, like for the extensive interview, he he didn't, he didn't feel like coming back to Lebanon after the way he was treated. And I wouldn't blame him. Like, and I don't think it's very, I wouldn't say it's very safe. I would feel very insecure myself uh, had I been in that situation, like to come back to Lebanon for, you know, a country that doesn't give you back that much in return. Let's be real.
0: So. And did he say that he still feels Lebanese when he was talking to you? Or has um, it become Canadian?
1: Oh, he's become American too.
0: He's so. American. <laughs> oh, I see. Yeah.
1: But, um, I, I. so the thing... The, and, the, in other the, words,
0: was there any nostalgia with the way he was talking about this country?
1: I mean, he, he does remember Hamra and he asked me about it. And I was like, yeah, I live in Hamra and stuff. And he went to IC and and he kind of asked me about where Wadi meal and stuff. And yeah... I, I guess there is a sense, but um, yeah, I I, 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 wouldn't, I can't give you a hundred percent answer on that, but some. Yeah.
0: The reason I'm going down that mm-hmm. road in your article, you, you mentioned several names, yeah. of kidnapped Lebanese Jews mm-hmm. in the 1970s, mm-hmm. again by complete chance. Uh, his name was Al- Albert Elia. Yes. Yeah. He was a muhtar mm-hmm. in Beirut. A Lebanese Jewish mukhtar, mm-hmm. his daughter, mm-hmm. her name is Gabrielle Elia. Mm-hmm. I did two episodes with her. Yes, yeah. And I just, you know, it's such a small community, mm-hmm. and everyone knows each other. Mm-hmm. And she's in her eighties. Oh, okay. But the way she talked about Lebanon was very, very romantic. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of nostalgia, deep nostalgia for the country, and she's not returned in over fifty years. Mm-hmm. But I always sense it's the next generation, which is really David Saad's generation, mm-hmm. that has a bit of distance. That they don't. I think they they experience the uglier side, mm-hmm. meaning that just as the civil war is erupting, mm-hmm. and then he's gone, mm-hmm. and that doesn't come back.
1: But yeah. So came in. Just for, so when I said the, when the title says I was Lebanese with anyone, I think he was just saying that. He just felt it was so unfair that to be barred from participating, but he also felt, hey, I'm as Lebanese as you or, or, he, or her or whatever. Why can't I play? So that, that's sort of where that title comes from. But also kind of, um, and I think God also talks about this in his book, um, about um, his parents, They at some point they come back, I think in the 80s or something and are kidnapped and almost yeah. died. So that's a very horrific thing, you know, experience as you know if your whole your family is kidnapped and gonna get killed unless so i i I don't i don't really blame him for not wanting to return so and and not feeling a sense of nostalgia for lebanon so
0: as somebody who doesn't really know much about sports history i thought it was fun to read Mm. it's a shame that it's not so easy to find online oh you were generous you provided the pdf file yeah. So I think you should do that to anyone that wants I need, to. I need to figure out a way to like post yeah. it on um, yeah. it's, uh, it's it's copyrights. It's quite expensive yeah. to buy, but yes. the PDF file was free. And I, think,
1: I think you can get it for free on Google Books, the whole chapter. So come in. I'll, oh, I think okay. we can post a link for that.
0: So let me ask you then a different question. Sure. Now that you've left L'Orient Le Jour, I think they're upset about this, by the way. Neve is there. Yeah. And now that you've joined hands with the Washington Post, okay, you've made a big jump. There's a sensitivity to your writing that I appreciate and everything you've written at Lorient today. And I think sensitivity is the right word. Everything you talk about, there's an emotion attached to it. Now, maybe that's sometimes frowned upon in featured pieces, but I think you do it on your terms and you do it well. Every episode I've done with you, and we've talked about so many things, there's always this hint of you're, you're kind of, you're feeling the place's pain. Mm. And it can go all the way from Al-Khudr Mosque in yeah. Maram khair which I didn't know about until I read it through you, to Quarantina, which you wrote about years back. Mm-hmm. Also, the way you talk about things that are happening now, like the Samir Asir fountain mm-hmm. that was sort of... Uh, they, there were kids jumping up and down in the water. The water was drained. The kids were kicked out. I think everything you write about, there's, there's almost like... You have the city's, I don't know, feelings embedded in you with the way you write. So... Is this something that comes naturally to you? Because you're an urban planner, you study maps, you referred to yourself several episodes ago as a geek. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, like a profound geek, but not a geek about other places. It's really about Beirut. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge question. Why do you love the city so much? Especially since you're a bit younger than me, Mm -hmm. you've only seen the bad stuff. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've grown up in the worst chapter of modern Lebanese history, but you've attached yourself to the story. So. Uh
1: I think um, I think you know, there's a better version of Beirut that we can all achieve or live in or whatever. So, and when, I, when you said like there's a prof- Yeah, I do see a profound sense of loss, but only because I...
0: Sense of loss.
1: Yes. I, I only see that because I just see the place getting worse and I know it can be better. Um, and I'm not nostalgic in the sense that, oh, everything was better by, way back then. But I know that there are some instances in history where you know, stuff wasn't always like this. And... And that's sort of why we use history. It's more used for the present's sake than it is for the past. Like, it's not just, oh, I want to know when this person was born or something. You know, it's about, it's there's a, there's a lesson in everything. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I do feel like the city can be a better version of itself. And th- and that's kind of why I write about, like, these issues and stuff. Because I'm, I'm kind of saying, yeah, I'm lamenting, no, this is something bad that's happening. But I'm, I mean, obviously, I can't make recommendations or anything. But... It's in the hopes that it, things would get better soon. That's so. not
0: really answering the question, though. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, really. Where does the atta- the love for it come uh, from? Oh, The love for it. And the, I'll, I'll make it. Yeah. I'll, I'll be more yeah. specific. Yeah. I mean, we all drive on the ring every day. Yeah. The four edge highway. You wrote about it like it's a living being. Yeah. Its birth. <laughs> yeah. Its prime. Its expansion. Its death. Its reconstruction. But you talk. You write about a highway bridge really like it's a person that you know mm. so that kind of relationship to the city
1: but the uh, the love i guess for the city i don't i maybe i i don't know why where it comes i think so i context i did live in saudi arabia for so long and i moved here and i was like and this is 2009 and i think it's the first time i saw you you were giving a tour in downtown and i was kind of impressed with whatever little snippets i heard i didn't want to join because i was like no i didn't pay I don't want him. Hey, to <laughs> Lebanese
0: came for free. That was I my policy. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Always.
1: But um, I think just having, that's why they would join the tour. Yeah, yeah. Just having you know <laughs> to learn so much, or to catch up about because I, I and then I didn't live in Beirut. I lived in Berman after I moved back, and then I lived in Beirut when I went to AUB. So I think it was just catching up and just having to learn so much, and I guess that's where the relationship comes from. I guess, uh, just the curiosity, the profound curiosity. And it, it also comes from like professors like Munafa Was or Robert Saliba, who passed away unfortunately late last year. They, they kind of have this, what's the word, um, curiosity that just needs to be. And I think that's what drives me, the curiosity. And were, that's where the stories come from, really.
0: You mentioned loss. Yeah. I think that's where my love comes mm-hmm. from. It's watching things that I love disappear. Mm-hmm. And it makes me love Bayouk more as a result. But it's usually the reverse feeling that I should have. If you lose something, you should love it less. Mm-hmm. I end up loving it more. And you're writing in a way, even though it's, it's more recent, but everything you touch is always on that issue as well. I didn't really appreciate that. You're talking about a city that has lost its way. Mm-hmm. You always refer back to urban planning too. But there is that element of loss. So is that a fair sort of, is that really the source? You're seeing something you love at yeah. a younger age also? disappearing
1: kind of yeah because i mean no it was never perfect and before the crisis it wasn't perfect it's just it's just going down the wrong path it's just constantly breaking down and it's like you know it's it's sad to to see this happen when you know you know that things can be a, a different way so i guess yeah that's i think that's a fair assessment yeah
0: well next time i'll do a proper therapy session with you no, Hamad, thank you for letting me thank touch you, on new, new subjects. I'll save enough time for the Q&A because we can talk, talk about other things as well. This is not obviously all that you write about. In the three episodes I've done, we've covered some 12 articles. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't want to repeat anything tonight. But Q&A, we can open it up. So, Hamad thank you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. So guys, I saved, I saved extra time for the Q&A to talk about everything we didn't talk about. I know this episode was particular and that we only talked about three articles this gentleman has written. He's written so much. So ask him whatever you'd like about urban planning, sports history, journalism in general, <laughs> and what it's like to be in his shoes joining the Washington Post. Sorry to put you on the spot. No, it's okay. Mm-hmm. It's a big, big deal. Anything you'd like. And to be honest, my favorite questions that I've asked you have been about transport, mm-hmm. public transport, the tram, the train. I always go back in time with you. So the, really ask whatever you'd like. There's two mics if there's any questions up front. Uh, the gentleman in the back, I think his name is William.
3: I have two questions then. Okay. Ask three. Okay, well, just two, actually. (laughs) How does one urban plan in the city is kind of chaotically built as Beirut? That's the first question. And the second question, there was a really brilliant article you wrote about a small village in Shuf which had become a a crypto mining space. Can you kind of tell us a bit more about where that is right now and and what? What's happened since you read the article?
1: Okay. So, the first question I think um, so in the olden days, they used to do like huge master plans for an entire city and its surroundings. You know, these it would be a top down kind of thing, and they would just come in and they would do their like, you know, they would do the lay of the land, and then from there, they would produce a plan. I feel like nowadays it's better to go at it, I guess, neighborhood by neighborhood get a feel of what the people want, go bottom down, bottom, sorry, bottom up. Um, And I don't know, just prioritize a few things, Um, mainly walkability, affordable housing, um, public space. That's, you know, we're in desperate need of that. Um, Yeah, start small. I guess that that would be my, uh, you know, answer in a nutshell. The other thing... um, yeah, so how that came about. It's so funny. So the guy who kind of pioneered it, he I was a teaching assistant at AUB at the architecture department. He was one of my students, I guess. I wasn't teaching, I was just, you know. Um and that's how I kind of got to know him and then over COVID, he kind of started doing a lot of crypto mining in his hometown in the Shouf that has a lot of hydroelectricity. So they didn't have to worry about, electric, about you know, about backup generators or fuel prices or whatever. And, you know, at the time, you know, as 2020, you know, the crisis was in its um, you know, early stages. And it was just a way to make extra cash on the side. And then his neighbors, a lot of them are family members or family friends or whatever they kind of started asking him to install for them or to get them hooked on crypto. And for a long time, that that was uh, some really nice chunk change. So part two, we kind of looked at, uh, this is literally, I think, maybe a month before the FTX thing and just the whole crypto crisis, I I don't know what to call it. Uh, CNBC asked me to kind of go back and see what what it was like, and it was more or less the same. I think Ahmad, who I interviewed, was getting ready to leave, go to the UK. Um, I did kind of ask him, because there was one of these coins that kind of crashed. He did, I think, lose a little bit of money on it. This was before FTX and stuff. Um, But since then, yeah, it, it kind of deserves a part two. But I guess if I were to do that again, just to see the lay of the land today after, I guess I would have to go more regional because there's a little thing going on in Syria too. And a little thing going on in Iran, because in Iran there's a lot of electricity. Um, Syria, not so much, but I, that, that's worth, um, you know, a second piece on, yeah, just to see what, you know, because um, it's been kind of devastating to a lot of crypto bros uh, since everything kind of went, to, you know. I hope that answers
0: your question. Is Patrick Assad still here, Patrick? I know you have questions, that's why you're here. I think you already wrote them on your phone, right? Yes, yes. So, let's get the mic to Patrick. I would like to ask a question about urban planning in Lebanon. Sure. Uh, Despite that most of urban activism and even most of the studies are centered and focused on Beirut, uh, we have witnessed a huge deterioration in uh, the urban fabric of Beirut uh, because we, we couldn't win the battle against real estate developers and against corruption. Uh, do you think it is the time now to, uh, to work at least in parallel and to have the activism uh, on other cities such as uh, Tripoli, for example, which is a conserved. The uh, anthropological
4: and social and uh, architectural uh, museum.
0: Uh, do you think it's is the time? And do you do you think do you agree that uh, Beirut is overly focused on it?
1: Uh, well, no, that's a good question. Yeah, yeah, you're right. <clears throat> there is a lot of focus here. I guess mainly because a lot of the universities and a lot of the researchers tend to you know, concentrate around here. Uh, in Tripoli, there are a lot of um, there is something going on, at least in the old part and. Next to Tel Square and stuff, where you know a lot of the the arch- architectural vernacular is kind of similar to Jemaisa and stuff. If you, and I'm sure you're from Tripoli, you've seen it there. Uh, th- there is there is like a new there is some kind of a movement uh, to help preserve the the heritage there. And I know um, Robert Saliba, who I kind of mentioned earlier, one of his students who is from Tripoli. He he's he's a professor now, I think, at Bellamend So Elba, so Elba the university also it's part of parliament. They have one also in the North. He's kind of, kind of spearheading something there. Um, I do think that when it comes to activists and stuff, the, what they do is, you know, it's, it's amazing work, but it's, it, 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 you know, the burden shouldn't be entirely on them. We should, we need, like state institutions to help, you know, like be the referee. You know, it's, it can't just be, you know, people uh, from like nonprofits because, you know, uh, unfortunately it's, 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 There needs to be, you know, like a like a third, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, to help, like, you know, tell people that, no, you can't infringe on this. You can't lock up a a park after like three o'clock. If you want to build a condo in this area, in this prime area, a certain percentage of it needs to be below market so that everyone can afford to live here. We need we need state institutions. And I do think, you know, activists, they help push things in the right direction. But the burden shouldn't be entirely on them. I mean, at the end of the day, we're only human. Um, and in other countries, uh, I'm, I'm not going to compare, you know, apples and oranges. But, like, you know, you can have, like, a healthy economy and stuff. And you can have, like, um, a mix of, like, you know, uh, like, reasonable, uh, like, amenities and, and, like, you know, pushback against, you know, I guess you know, developers who kind of want just to cast everyone else aside. So, there it can be a healthy mix, but you just need the right referee, so,
0: yeah. Thanks. Samer, did you want? <clears throat>
4: I did have a question, but I, I kind of got lost somewhere. Okay, so, uh, just to jog my memory a little bit. Um, so, we you talked a about- lot about well, your article, from what I understood. Uh, the aspect of revisiting the past to talk about the present, mm-hmm. in a certain sense. So, in that regard, with history sort of repeating itself in so many different ways, why, why do we, why is it that our uh, current memory is so blurry? Mm-hmm. I don't know if I got the question. Across. Yeah,
1: no, I, I. I mean, it's a good question. I I, I I guess it's just maybe because we're constantly hounded with information nowadays with, you know, I, I guess it's a, there's a technological shift there. But at the same time, I mean, at least in Lebanon, we have to put up with a lot. Like literally almost three years ago, the whole, like half the city blew up. And I feel like, you know, we've been forced to kind of get over it really fast uh, and just kind of forget about everything else that was going on for a minute. It, 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 it's not just, it's not just, you know, us, it's just the situation we're living in. And I mean, and I guess sort of that's why I wrote my first article, which was about like a port blast from 1934. It was because I I just randomly found it in the newspaper archives and I was just like, wow, people forgot about this. And this was when the first backlash against the judicial investigation started. Uh, And I was kind of scared that, oh, people would also forget about that. So I guess, I don't know if this answers your question, but I, I guess the... I guess just reminding people of things that happened in the past kind of like it sort of sets out like a warning or a beware kind of thing, I guess. I, I don't know if I answered that correctly. Sorry.
0: I'll throw a question. Yeah. So this morning I found a video from 1991 Yeah. of downtown Beirut. Uh, it's a downtown that you simply you can't experience. It's right before Solider and it's right after the civil war. Mm -hmm. So it's a very narrow window where the green line is open and anyone can walk through. Mm -hmm. They can enter Martyrs Square for the first time in 15 years and walk in with ease or relative ease. Mm -hmm. There were landmines. There were still streets you couldn't go down. There were checkpoints all over the place. But I was watching this video carefully. It's about 15 minutes long. It's driving into Beirut. From the north. So mm-hmm. from the highway. It's Habib's father. Sorry? Habib's father. Habib's father? Habib Batah's dad. I think
1: he's the one who filmed it.
0: Oh, no, no it was my father.
1: Oh, oh okay, yeah. okay. Sorry, sorry,
0: sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's okay, it's okay. Uh, I think Habib must have shared it maybe. He or... shared,
1: he's also from, I think his dad is also from Tripoli.
0: Sorry. Habib the journalist. Yeah. Yes. He yeah. shared
1: a video this morning too. I thought you were talking about it. No, it's that. the same video. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we're
0: both sharing each other's videos okay. regularly. Okay. Uh, the video is just a camcorder. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's any effort in trying to document. It's just, what the fuck happened to this city? Yeah. And it's 15 years. It's a first visit after leaving Beirut in the mid-70s. Mm-hmm. So it's someone returning to Beirut 15 years later at a ghost town.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So in a way, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a downtown. And it's the last moments you could see downtown before Solidaire. Mm-hmm. So it's before Erasure. What I was surprised by... It's not that the stuff that's gone, that's been removed. The Rivoli is gone, obviously. Mm -hmm. The Hilton is gone. The American embassy that was once on the Corniche, the Mm -hmm. remnants of it, brought down. Mm -hmm. A lot of downtown, especially Martyrs Square, is gone. But there are things that are still there. Mm -hmm. And I want to pick your brain on the things that are still there. Like the Holiday Inn. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, pretty much the same shape. Mm -hmm. St. George. More or less looking the same. Mm-hmm. The, the opera cinema, mm-hmm. Virgin Megastore. I don't know what it is right now, but what used to be the Virgin Megastore.
1: There's a, I know there's a at the bottom where there's storefronts is a Visa processing center.
0: The Visa processing yeah, center at the Virgin. You know, it's funny. I don't know we're gonna refer to that building later in history, the Virgin Megastore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but. And somebody said Burj Al-Mur. Yeah, Yeah. that's still there. And there are some other remnants lingering. The Murder Square statue, Mm -hmm. it's there. I was wondering how you feel about these sites that have lasted, but are pretty much left in the same condition. Mm -hmm. I used to worship these sites. Mm -hmm. Worship, meaning every tour, I'd look at those sites. And for me, it was almost like paying tribute to what was going to eventually be brought down. Mm -hmm. 20-some years later, I'm in my 40s, I no longer care (laughs) about these sites. If you knock down the Holiday Inn tomorrow, couldn't give a shit. Mm -hmm. Sorry to say that. And for that matter, forget the Holiday Inn. Any of those sites that are still lingering, Burj Al-Mur, if it falls backwards, Mm -hmm. I don't care. The St. George can reopen tomorrow. Mm -hmm. It can reopen, I wouldn't care. It could be knocked down too. I've lost uh, a certain relationship I had to the Civil War era Mm -hmm. and the relics that survived. And I honestly don't really care anymore if Martyrs Square is a parking lot or not. Mm -hmm. I have some detachment to the Civil War era. You're a bit younger, but you have that kind of relationship to the city. And I know by talking to you privately as well, you obsess about these things too. Mm -hmm. Do you have that kind of detachment today? that you're kind of moving on?
1: I mean, it's hard to move on. Like, for example, the Holiday in like, I, I told you last time, like, I have this walk that I do in the morning from Hamra to, and I pass by it to Shemeza and, and then Ashrafi, and I pass by it every day, and it's just hard to miss it and just hard to think, not to think about it. Like, w- not just what could have been or the hotel, but like, you know, it's, 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 it is a site of urban trauma, but what could have been after the Civil War. I mean, I know there's a property dispute between the three owners over the Holiday Inn. I think it's the same situation with the Mord Tower. Those are more technicalities, but what to do with it, I, don't, I, I think... We, no, it's we less, less
0: to do with the uh, yeah. politics behind the mm-hmm. structures, more to do with you and your relationship to these structures because i think this goes yeah. back to what salmon was hinting at is that it becomes blurry to the point you kind of lose your sense mm-hmm. and you you lose i think your feelings too on the way do, do you have any kind of
1: I, I not yet not yet not yet I, I don't know why but um i do think there, there are sites of possibilities there it, it would take a lot of political will and stuff but i do think like i said it's just hard to miss them like if they were demolished and such, that would be you know, that wouldn't be great at all because you know, these these, you know, sites, you know, they bear witness to something um let's just yeah, you know, something terrible, yes, but like it's also like a lesson that we can learn from. Best, uh, but if you, yeah. so I'm
0: going to push as mm-hmm. much as I can with you and put Mm-mm. you on the spot here. I'm beginning to understand why Lebanese don't care. Uh-huh. Why? Post civil war, I can imagine many people knock it down. Okay. We talked a bit about urban planning with Patrick earlier. Yeah. I can feel the psychology behind it, mm-hmm. that it no longer means something. Mm-hmm. Get rid of it. But we and haven't
1: not... asked the wider public what to do with it. I don't think there's been anything like that. I know in downtown, uh, I think when not, a, not, not, when
0: not Sorry, not saying that this is a good thing. Mm-hmm. It could be actually the worst ending to mm-hmm. a building. Mm-hmm. But I, I could, if I were just to throw a poll... I don't think most Lebanese would care if the holiday and came down tomorrow. I don't think they have this lessons learned. And the reason yeah. I'm going down this road, uh, linking back to what Samer said, I think it's because Beirut doesn't have a closed chapter of anything. Yeah, It's a constant reopening of a chapter and it's the constant closing of what you think is the end of a story. Mm-hmm. Then it starts again. Your piece about the castle struck me <laughs> as, oh, even in the late 1800s, Beirutians are like, nah, it's been knocked down before. Yeah. Let's just expand the port. Mm-hmm. It really—it it feels familiar.
1: Yeah, but I mean, I feel like, and the article—I—I I, I don't know. I, and this is what I've noticed since then, because I've been back a few times, and I always notice more people there than there were before. So I feel like, just talking about it and just opening it up to discussion, it does reignite like something about that's I guess lost or forgotten, but and it, it i don't know it's, it's i think it's struck i think the article's kind of struck a nerve because every time someone t- they they always kind of bring it up i, I don't know why but with yeah, other you know other places that are like you know they bear uh, you know witness to the civil war i i i don't know i think this is a larger question I, for me i, I would no, i would not i would care like if they were gone tomorrow because mm. i do think there are sites of possibilities it's just we haven't really explored what to do with them yet Uh, Aside from like, okay, should we turn them to condos or a hotel? This is this is a big discussion over the Holiday Inn. Is it more expensive to demolish it and rebuild it from scratch? Blah blah blah. But what does the wider public think? What do the people living around? Because there's so many people who live around in Climonso next to it, and they basically wake up and see it. I I don't know. It's it's I guess just open. It's a a wide open question.
0: So what also struck me about this video is that it's pointed towards the green line. Mm from the highway. Mm -hmm. So you're looking at the skyline of Beirut. The port is on your right. Mm -hmm. Today, you look on both sides. It's a war zone. Mm -hmm. So that also struck me that this is 32 years later, Beirut looks pretty much the same. Slightly few newer buildings that are now destroyed, Mm -hmm. but those bigger structures are still in the background, Mm -hmm. and the port itself is destroyed. Mm -hmm. So I had this kind of, oh, this is all... Urban planning becomes more theory than practice. Mm -hmm. And that's maybe a follow-up question to you. Since you did a master's in this subject, do you ever feel like what you studied and what you worked hard on, Mm -hmm. a master's degree at AUB is not easy. Mm -hmm. And your master's degree is difficult in itself, your dissertation, and you pulled it off while doing a full-time job as Mm. well on the side. Anything that you learned from those years at AUB, do you think you'll ever be able to implement them? other than a boutique intersection here at the end of Jamezi that's turning into some oh, piazza.
1: That, that wasn't mine. That was, um, that was another team at the urban lab. But I, I do feel like, I mean, these kind of lessons, you, yeah, you can't just learn them anywhere. I think, you know, AB, you know, provides such a great space for this. Uh, I do hope some, like what I made in like my recommendations for my thesis was just because there are so many vacant plots in Quarantina that were once, um, like, uh, which is basically like a makeshift house that they, they were erased during the civil war. And then there's just vacant. It was my hope that, or, or my recommendations that th- what would be built there in the future, uh, like, of course it would kind of encompass the, the population there as in like, they would have a part in it and they would be able to afford to live in it at the same time. Uh, me working in it in in the short run, I don't know <laughs> it's, it's, it's difficult this, Um, I, I do think these are lessons for life, and the things you can share like in the Lorient article or in a wapo article, so
0: I don't know if that answers the question, so I'm trying to probe further okay. s- but you're not letting me you've got walls in front of you, which mm. I actually like okay. <laughs> okay Simon, please
4: all right, so <clears throat> sorry, so let me see if I can phrase my question mm. properly um, so. Well, I do have a question for you, Ronnie. Oh, uh, why is it that you have lost your fervor for, you know, the memory of Beirut? But uh, I do remember a road trip to downtown from ACS uh, school we shared. Or my first time in downtown after you know after the civil war, and I, oh. I was I was in awe even with, even with all the destruction. Oh. Um, my, my problem with Beirut is one, the lack of green spaces, uh, the shifting from one neighborhood to another where one neighborhood is so poor, the other mm-hmm. neighborhood like just across the street where it's just uh, so affluent, like the wealth uh, disparity there is just crazy. Um, I'm trying to get to the question. <laughs> uh, so what's missing? Why Why? Why can't we just, you know, we know we need green spaces, mm-hmm. but so at the same time, you know, we are such a car culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're such a, all right, so let's tear down these old buildings, even even if there are ruins there, our history are, you know, we're, we're so fond of our history and our culture, but we also destroy it at the same time. Mm. What's what's missing here?
1: Um, well, a bunch of things, but, about being so car dependent it's just we don't have any other way to get around like we we talked about this earlier like when we went from uh marmkhail to to mtv in edma i think or naash like we were basically trapped we can't i mean if we take a bus we'll be on the other side of the highway and we'll get killed trying to cross it we obviously just to, just the reason why we have so cars is just because there are no alternatives there's there's a bus system that's kind of less than perfect but I mean, we need trains, light rail, trans- all kinds of you know transit options, and that kind. Of, and obviously, side, wider sidewalks. Um, I mean, this morning I was walking, and there was a car parked in the middle of the sidewalk, and I was just like, it took one car just to ruin my little walk. You know, from I forget, I was getting him an an to to go back home or something. But yeah, it's it it's. I mean, for that, but like, and just the disparity between you know certain neighborhoods and stuff. It, it this is part of like, I mean. A wider discussion about, you know, state institutions not prioritizing, you know, like the public or, or, you know, what's best for the public. They're kind of prioritizing what's best for, you know, investment and stuff. And you can we can talk about that. You can have a good investment strategy and stuff, but not one that's solely based on real estate and just, you know, destroying whatever is there, building something on top and in, in the hopes that someone will buy from abroad. I, I, it's, it's, it's a, I don't know, huge conundrum that I guess... There are people to help solve it. It's just, I guess we're kind of held hostage by this political class that just, you know, it won't let the actual experts do their job. Or if there are experts, they'll just trump anything um, that they recommend. I mean, we all saw how they dealt with the financial, and they're still dealing with the financial crisis. I mean, mean, yesterday there was the whole uh, international arrest warrant and
0: whatever. Hamad answers like a talented reporter <laughs> and I think that's you're good at it, I'll answer in a s- yeah. much less eloquent okay. more raw way if it's okay I, Okay, so we're, Samar and I went to the same school in the early 90s, we both know the same Beirut and I think it goes back to the story of loss, mm-hmm. I think <clears throat> it's what attracted you to do urban planning and to write about Beirut it's what attracted me as well but I think when you've experienced too much of it, the, the, the organism itself dies. And what you're left with is not something you really love anymore. And I'll, I'll say it in a way that makes more sense regarding Beirut. Forget 15 years that I spent when you met me in 2009 mm-hmm. as a teenager. Mm-hmm. And you wanted to approach me on the streets. 13 or 14, yeah. yeah. Okay, two thousand sorry, 2013? Mm, no, 2009. 2009, you were yeah. 13, sorry. Ish. okay so yeah. you're you're an adolescent yeah you see this sort of guy walking around telling stories i spent 15 years doing that <laughs> and i'll just say from my own lens i and i go back to what i worshipped what i really loved was holding on to these few markers in the city that i still believed would serve that role <laughs> that you hinted at earlier which is a lessons learned i still thought one day the egg will serve a purpose beyond just being what it is not October 17 stuff not that anomaly I still think I still thought that there would be something that we could look at and say that's the end Mm -hmm. maybe over time it's when you're dealing with loss on a on a huge scale and then you see everything you loved in Beirut disappear architecturally and you see the city itself deteriorate Mm -hmm. I mean parking on the sidewalk I take it for granted now I don't think of it as something that's odd Mm -hmm. and of course can't ignore it the port blast Mm -hmm. i think and the inability to do anything about it and the swallowing that this is just part of our fate Mm -hmm. i think it can maybe it's a it's permanent there's no going back from that so maybe now when i look at the holiday and i look at the silos Mm -hmm. i kind of see the same thing Mm -hmm. they're stuck in time and that's how it is It's not that you lose, uh, it's not falling out of love with Beirut. On the contrary, when I read your articles, I remember exactly what I love about Beirut. But I don't see it anymore. Mm -hmm. I think about it. I feel it. But I don't see it. Uh, Late at night, I wouldn't recommend anyone doing this. I wander into the train station in (laughs) Maram Khayel. You shouldn't do it. But if you can do it, (laughs) just don't, it's not me that recommended. You see these trains, and when you're younger, you're fascinated. Wow, we had German trains from the 40s. Who cares? Mm -hmm. They're dead. They've been dead for nearly a century. Oh, not a century. They've been parked there for half a century. They were outdated anyway in the Mm -hmm. 70s. They're cargo trains. They're not even passenger trains. And if you go to them now, what you see is uh, the train station club that started using them. They would blast steam from the engine whenever there was like a dance party. Okay. And now cars park pretty much along the wagons uh-huh. and it's valet parking yeah. for safe club, nightclub next to the, uh, the train station itself. I don't think anyone that goes there, parks their car or gives it valet, cares okay. that there's these wagons parked there. I think I'm beginning to feel that too. It's, mm. That train station will never be a train station again. It's going to be a dead parking lot for a nightclub. There's a plan to turn it into a park that's... Yeah, so this, this goes back to the earlier stuff. Yes. That's when I ask about AUB. Yes. Yeah. All I remember mm-hmm. are the plans and the plans and yes. the plans yes, yes, and yes, the yes, plans. Yes. I,
1: I get it, and it gets frustrating that you see all these great plans that never come alive. They're maybe I 1%... Mean, I've seen one, this, this yeah. little yeah, yeah, 1% of them actually yeah. get you know, to the implementation phase. But it's not about... I don't think it's about people don't care. I just feel like people unfortunately can't do anything about it because of just how the system is like i can't do anything about you know all these cars being parked on the sidewalk and i don't know i see elderly people who have to walk in the middle of the street yeah. Yeah. and you know get risk you risk getting killed or something and it's just really it, it, it is hopeless and it does feel like but i mean
0: you and can't, sorry yeah. just to add to it Maybe Samia, you remember this—the Normandy trash dump mm-hmm. after the war ended. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Now we have something more monstrous further down. Jalad Jadidib, and, and yes, and then Bush Hamoud. Bush I mean, they
1: because we can't. I mean, there, there's a solution for that. It's recycling and sorting and all that. But it's there is value for some people in dumping garbage into the water and destroying basically, you know, the, the whole ecosystem there. Just so they can reclaim land, so that in forty or fifty years, when the methane is drained out from underneath it, they can build something on top of it, which is just crazy. Um, it's it's a very and and there's also money being made in just dumping it and then like flattening it. That's
0: that's just its own little nightmare. There. You want another question? Go ahead. Sure.
4: <laughs> I seem to be on a roll today.
0: Yeah. But sorry, is there anyone else that wanted to ask? We kind of hijacked. Yeah. Let, let's yeah, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Let's do that. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah.
5: Uh, what about the future of downtown? Um, is it doomed to be exclusive to the wealthy in the future? Um, or can mm-hmm. it become inclusive again like it was decades ago? Mm-hmm. I know my grandmother used to say that she used to be able to buy a mick and and a jewelry mm-hmm. um, just next to each other. And I know it's probably too late for that. But right now it's completely dead. And is there a chance that we can... Revive it in a way that's actually inclusive for more people. The way we kind of witnessed um, during the Thauda days.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, I,
1: I'm I'm not sure. Well, I, I, well, first of all, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't, I'm not sure what the future holds, but I I do think that oh yeah, in the future I, there there could be a possibility of that. I I think it all has to do with um, just. Uh, I, I'm not sure how to answer that best. Um, I think most most neighborhoods and most places over time they tend to change for the, for the better or the, or the worse. So, um, I think in, in the future there is, you know, the hope of yeah, maybe. Um, I'm not sure.
0: I mean, I'm not an urban planner, but I think we will live to see downtown exactly the way it is. I don't think downtown can recover. There's something about Solidaire and I mean, we all have different relationships with this company. I think it's odd over time, over time, not now, not then, over time. We used to blame this company always for being exclusive, right? And being high-end and boutique, and that's all true. And then over time, you realize the rest of the city increasingly (coughs) looks ugly. And that's municipality, that's not Solidea. So you start losing the good stuff on the periphery and across the city. And then so there becomes that sort of, okay, you can walk. There's some urban planning, some. And it's still inaccessible. Now, it's locked up. You can't walk. There's no shops open. A lot of it looks like the Green Line, except it's not war. But it looks like the Green Line. A lot of the windows that are shattered look like the Green Line, but it's not war. It's the port blast. I think that's how we're going to see downtown for the rest of our lives. It's hard to imagine a... The largest reconstruction project ever done. The longest running, most expensive real estate project known to man. Coming out okay. Given everything else that happened to this country. So I, I don't know. I'm maybe a bit bleak. But that's how I see it. I always see the security zones that will be walled off forever. In, in the episode today, we talked about a neighborhood that none of us can walk through. Mm. it's important to say this. Every single article that refers to Lebanese Jews is about a neighborhood none of us can walk through. It's right dead smack in downtown Beirut, Wedi Abu I
1: think the reason behind that is that I think the former prime minister still lives there.
0: Saad Hadid is in Abu Dhabi. I, and the security barriers are still there. I, I, no, there's some embassies at the top. And that but, too, yeah. But it doesn't even matter anymore. Here or not, <laughs> that area will be permanently walled off.
4: But I think this is where all the questioning I've been trying to uh, well, set sort of nudge things. It It's a sense, our apathy, it comes for me. It comes from the sense that nothing in the city belongs to us anymore.
1: That's fair, yeah.
4: That, you know, I walk Co- it's on the street, yeah. there's the car on the... Mm-hmm. parking lot on, on the sidewalk mm-hmm. now i have this thing i always keep uh saying to myself that one day i'm just gonna start treating the cars like the sidewalk and just mm-hmm. walk all over mm-hmm. them it's like i've had enough
1: i used to have this thing where if a car is parked on the sidewalk i would write something very na- lean can tell you what i would write but, <laughs> but i mean i kind of gave up on that too <laughs> it's because i'm like you know it's but I don't blame this person either. Maybe he or she was late to work or something, and they just couldn't park anywhere, and they have to come from outside the city. And maybe you know, I, I, I like right now. I, 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 don't walk anywhere. I work from home. But um,
0: for the for the very few of us who can walk to where they work, I mean, that is a privilege in itself. But let me throw the yeah. question back to Zena. You mentioned your was it your mother or grandmother? Mother. Your grandmother who could buy the McKinsey from downtown. Yeah. And she also saw the civil war, I'm guessing, destroy downtown. We grew up in Solidaire. What do you think? How can you sort of project into the future? What do you imagine happening to downtown? Mm.
5: I know there's a lot of politics involved, and there are so many different um, elements that we are powerless against, for sure. Um, But I do feel that... um, I don't know... We reclaimed some territory during in October 2019, November 2019, during the Independence Day, March, November 2019, was amazing. And downtown became vibrant again with people from all walks of life, from different backgrounds, religions, um, um, uh, geographies across Lebanon. That was beautiful. And it doesn't need to be that we go down to the stores like maybe the stores are going to be there and they're going to be the expensive stores but what about us like reclaiming the space around it you know um could we do something there art and poetry and music um that can be for free
2: mm-hmm.
1: and this kind of speaks to a larger problem that we're seeing not just in beirut or lebanon but all over the world just the disappearance of search spaces like libraries, like parks, like just places, you know, not work, not home and not, not a cafe where you, not Alias, which is a great place, um, but like places where you can just go. There's, com- there's a sense of community and you don't necessarily have to pay for anything. Uh, it's, 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 it's part of a larger problem. I I, I agree. And I, I think we need to have that conversation too, but it's also come in like kind of like why are parks closed after three o'clock just when kids are coming out of school I don't know why there's this huge fear of the public or if someone from a less fortunate background comes to play with your kids, I don't know why that's a problem. I think in the US uh, public parks, I think it's, uh, and you can tell me more about this, like people from all walks of life, you you know, go to the park and and yeah, you're sure you have like a few weirdos here and there, but like for the most part, it's safe to go, you know, and to keep it open. You can tell me more. The closest
0: experience I had in recent memory and talking about this is Zena Sab, what she mentioned earlier. The seeing a building's last breath, mm-hmm. completely by chance, the Grand Theater in downtown, mm-hmm. watching that building reverberate when people were protesting outside and going into the Grand Theater in itself was amazing. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like, okay, that's the last glimpse of the earlier generation. Mm-hmm. What they experienced, albeit destroyed, And I think, I think we'll never get the chance to go into that building again. But there's like a window, I think, October 17, I agree. It opened it up very briefly Mm -hmm. and then it shut down. And
1: the thing about, I guess, October 17 and the air, it's just that it's just people, you know, you didn't have to pay to be there, you know. And there were no cars in the way trying to kill you or whatever. I think
0: that speaks to oh, even more. AUV yeah. was giving courses in yeah. the egg. Mm-hmm. Actually, I watched professors talking mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in the egg. So there was a nice moment there. Yeah. But I don't know. I think there's an acceptance, too, that these buildings are just going to stay like this. Anyway, uh, there's, yes, there was another question in the back.
6: I just wanted to add something about what you were saying about <coughs> public spaces. So I was telling you that we made, a, my NGO made a garden in Marmiter. And at the beginning, I was like, oh, I'm not going to let the municipality close this space. And I really had like that point of view, like, OK, it's the state closing these uh, areas for people and we're going to try to keep it open as much as possible. And then when we first, you know, launched it and the community came and they joined us for, you know, a nice breakfast and the got new garden they were like oh you have to close this area i'm like why like it's for you guys it's public space for you to enjoy you know you can come bring your kids are like no no foreigners will come and sit in this park or you know unfortunately like less fortunate people will come and like ruin it this space for you so i think it's not just uh, i'm still trying to understand mm-hmm. you know what happened there or what it is in our maybe culture or in our community where we're used to maybe that is driving this narrative, but I don't think it's just, you know, the municipality and the state that's closing off these spaces anymore.
1: Yeah, no, you're right. There is this fear of the other that kind of prevails, not just people from, you know, I've seen cases where, like, you know, in Quarantina, where, like, you know, this group of Lebanese people who also live in Quarantina, if we keep this open, their their kids are going to come and they're going to mix. I, and I don't know if this is part of a larger legacy of the Civil War and just, you know, like a lack of trust between people. Best I think a good way to come up, uh, to bridge that gap or to, you know, come up, uh not come up, what's the word? um You know, just heal from that is through these, you know, spaces where, you know, people from different backgrounds meet. Um, and it's unfortunate that, you know, like, that, that, you know, you guys did such a great initiative there on the Fuad Butras Bridge that, you know, they, that people were uh, asking you to close it so that it stays kind of manicured and just take a month at it. Yeah, it's very unfortunate, so.
0: The gentleman.
7: Um, I have, I don't know if this is a question as much as it is an introspection on how the conversation kind of went. A bit follow up to what she said and what you said about the ag, the train station and um, all these other kind of forgotten relics of Lebanon. It kind of made me think of Petra and Jordan Believe it or not, so Petra is this amazing carved city in stone, Um, and it was abandoned not because it was a failure. It was abandoned because it lost its purpose. There was no the trade routes changed, so there was no reason to pass through Petra anymore. And a thriving this once thriving city was completely abandoned, and that's also part of the reason why why it's so well preserved. Because you know it was just left. It was covered in sand, and there was no reason for it to be destroyed. And I can't help but kind of get that feeling about Beirut and Lebanon is that it's this once great city that almost lost its purpose and we have all these relics that have lost their purpose. And you kind of reflect back, well, you know, Lebanon was a hub for the Middle East. Uh, It was a place you could have fun and, you know, all these conservative countries could come. Well, now we're not necessary anymore on that front. We're not necessary on the banking front, which was a thing. Like, it's like all this, this story of repeatedly losing our purpose in so many ways and just being another Petra that's you know, lost in the desert. Um, and I, I wanted to know what you think about that, if, if you think it's a good metaphor for, for what's going on. <laughs>
0: I think it's a fantastic metaphor. I think it's spot on. I'd highly recommend you get to know Nadim Shahati if you don't know him. He's a, a brilliant writer. Mm. He talks about Levantine, he talks about Mediterranean cities and he also <coughs> refers to Jordan but not Petra. The name of the city escapes me now. One of those trading routes that's no longer needed. You can fly. You don't need to go through Jordan. The kind of, you you lose your purpose over time. He often writes about Beirut that way, a cosmopolitan city. Although I don't think he's ever referred to relics. That's quite interesting. That a city can lose its meaning and it sort of just fades. But I like the way you entered, you, you, you used the relics as the metaphor. I like that. These are relics that, yeah, they don't mean anything. They don't, they're not serving their initial purpose, yeah.
1: And just to add to what Roni's saying, the purpose of the city is, you know, so people can live in it and thrive and stuff. I don't know how you can do that in a place where there's no electricity, and that the only way to do it is to overpay for a generator that's kind of simultaneously killing you with all those fumes. Uh, I I kind of agree with you that it, I don't. Know, I don't know if Beirut ever had one single purpose or anything. But it's just constantly becoming less and less um, a place to live in, and just a place just that you're stuck in, in a, a sense. That's a very cynical view. But yeah, I mean, especially in light of what's ha- been happening in, over the past few years, um, like I don't know how anyone can like live or thrive in a place that you know just doesn't give back to. And this is, of course, it's not the city's fault. It's just the people who administrate it you know that that's the biggest blunder right there so
0: yeah sorry you manage a park in marmites is that oh the yeah. the bridge that goes to nowhere yeah yeah sort of cut off, cut off.
6: we didn't want people to be mad at us, but mm. we tried our best in that small area. And we really tried to get the community to be involved, you know, to enjoy the space. But it's definitely, I think that's the harder part of the process. The municipality didn't really care what we did there or anything, but it was like just trying to get the community to actually use the space. That's the challenge.
0: You know, you just illustrated the, th- the kind of dilemma I was trying to get at. I was a bit sloppy. The Fuad butros <laughs> Highway, is part of Edge Heb's master plan, or uh, it's it's a 1950s he, idea. I or, think
1: no, that that I think it was under him that was spearheaded. I think yeah, so, yeah. It's a
0: yeah. Uh, <laughs> late 50s or early 60s uh, connection point from mm. Sessin all the way to the port, mm-hmm. and thankfully it's never completed. But that's also a double-edged sword. That's the master plan for the city. It's incomplete, so you have this bridge that goes to nowhere. And then you add to that somebody's trying to put a park on that bridge or near that bridge and it's not used as a park. It's and it's locked up. No, so I, we kept it open. Like, I made sure we didn't close it. Um,
6: mm. like we we were really asked to close it by the community like when everyone literally everyone who visited us on the bridge when we were creating it they asked us to close it, but we insisted not to and we just asked who uh, works at the building next to the bridge to just keep an eye on it, to be like the guard guardian of the garden. But um, it's, it's a challenge. And I mean, recently a person started sleeping in this garden also because it's a public space. I mean, it's his right technically. So that has also become like a challenge for me with the community. But uh, hopefully, I mean, I know a lot of people who have actually enjoyed it and sat in it to get like a breath of fresh air, but it's definitely a challenge and definitely one that I didn't expect because when I think of a garden, I go like, oh, wow, like a nice space to sit in. But Mm -hmm. uh, it's a challenge.
1: It kind of reminds me, I, I forget who someone was telling me that, you know, actually wider sidewalks are bad because it's less space for from taken from the road but also you know some people are going to come and sit or stand on that sidewalk and okay i get maybe why this person would be bothered by that but it's also come in a larger problem that just 80% of the people in Lebanon are under the poverty line that's a huge problem in itself that needs to be fixed so it's it's sort of looking at the problem from like a, the wrong direction kind of like what you were saying that there's a man sleeping there the problem isn't that he's sleeping there the problem is that he just has, doesn't have anywhere to go. And I'm guessing this is an elderly person, right? Uh, yeah, but like, I mean, still, uh, uh, yeah.
0: Uh, uh, L- late night partying? N-
1: no, I don't know. But it's like, not you, sit. is it? <laughs> no, no, but I mean, just the problem that this person can't find a shelter, anything, that's, that's the problem in itself. Not that he's sleeping, but I was going to say something. And, no, and the scene square. They did put a few benches there. Yeah. And some homeless people, mostly at night, sit there and, and sleep. And I do notice that they are elderly and that kind of speaks to a larger problem that, you know, just we just disregarded the elderly and just told them to go fend for themselves when they've worked so hard for like 60 or 70 years just to to sleep on a bench. You know, there's two things I'm glad that Mm.
0: exist. Sorry to steal the mic a bit. Uh, I live next to what was once Laziza. So I live next to a giant hole in the ground. Yeah. (laughs) But I can now see beyond that hole and I see what is called Laziza Park even though it's not really where Laziza once stood. It's just further up the street. That's uh, that kind of initiative. You put rocks together, you put some gravel, you plant a few things. Yeah, you can do that. Mm -hmm. Small scale, it does work to a degree. But that's really the only example. And then a a monstrous example, which is for the wrong reasons, that Normandy trash dump that turns into waterfront, Beirut waterfront, an unfinished corniche. Mm -hmm that was locked up for years and years and years and then a few years ago we just kind of bulldozed our way in they still try they have these sort of blocks that are meant to keep people out just sort of you walk around and you can access an unfinished waterfront and it looks so bizarre if you ever look at even the the designs are not finished Mm -hmm. that railing is not finished it's the wrong paint color Mm -hmm. it's the wrong tiling everything is not done that's now become our extended corniche so it feels like a constant, constant failing. But it's not the fault of anyone that's pursuing this. And this goes back to something. You can be a very skilled urban planner in Beirut. Actually, I think the region's most talented urban planners mm. all came out of AUB. Yeah. And look at Beirut. Mm-hmm. There's a big divergence there from what you can do to the city and what you can study about mm-hmm. it. And I always felt that that just gets worse over time. doesn't get better.
1: I mean, again, it goes back to just the right people aren't being let into the door. It's just, and if they are, they're always trumped by whoever the boss is. so:
0: We have time for maybe one more question. Summer. <laughs> Was there anyone else that wanted to ask? Well, let's let the lady in the back ask a question actually.
4: I do have control of the microphone, you'
3: know. <laughs> I: Make question. it a joint question. Uh, thanks very much. Um, so it struck me, Muhammad. I don't know you, but it struck me as I was listening. You're an urban planner. You said you're a map geek. Clearly, you're also a historian and you love history. Um, and it struck me as you were speaking tonight. You know, I, I grew up here. I studied in the Lebanese system. So I studied Lebanese history. And it struck me how limited those who study Lebanese history are. In what they learn, you know, I three years out of my entire schooling covered the same exact period.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, it's monochromatic. Um, with the research that I've been doing recently, I'm a social psychologist. I've been able to meet some young people who are very passionate about this country. Um, they really have a desire to see things change and they, they, they feel a sense of hopelessness and at the same time they're trying to be hopeful. And I'm thinking about people like them and people younger than them going through the schooling system, and I'm thinking about the articles that you have written for L'Orient today, now for Washington Post. And I wonder, and maybe this is an unfair question to you because you, you're not an uh, educator, um, you're an urban planner, you're a writer, but if you were... Uh, I'm asking you hypothetically, how do you think we can give these young people a knowledge of history of Lebanon mm-hmm. that is beyond those, those few years and a limited angle on those few years? You know, um, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, uh, so
1: I, I didn't do the Lebanese history thingy either. Um, I did... Not either, but yeah, I did the international history, which was like World War II and Germany and whatever. So I didn't really get much, you know, of an inkling about what went down in Lebanon either. Uh, So I kind of had to go and find that. Uh, Like when I was saying, I know I saw Roni giving like tours and stuff, I really wanted to know about, okay, what's the story of this and that and stuff. Uh, And that kind of led me down a path to like go and discover it myself. I do think obviously, you know, the education system Specifically, when it comes to history, they just gloss over everything just to keep it safe and PC and whatever. But obviously, I mean, it's 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 unfair that not yeah, it is unfair that in France they're learning about the Beirut blast, but over here, I mean, I think our history books stop in nineteen forty eight. Forty three, uh, yeah, yeah, and then I I I do think you can get like these lessons, I guess, by reading Lorient today or by discovering them yourself or through further education, but I don't know. I, unless it's more accessible or, or more plural, I, I don't think we can get to that point. But I don't know if that answers your question. I just, I'm just rambling, sorry.
0: May I wrap it up with just a r- reply? Mm-hmm. Since I know you, and we've met each other before. Is it accurate to say that we don't know our history after independence? I remember taking courses, not just in school and university later, that bring us right up to the present. And there's ways to do it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Even at AUB, I took two courses on modern Lebanese politics and history. At school as well, we took post, I think it was post-Civil War history, although taught to a degree, mm-hmm. maybe not the full story, yeah. but you get enough. And actually you can now pretty much buy literature on it, locally yeah. published. You can watch documentaries about it, mm-hmm. locally published. I don't know if this argument always adds up. I think a lot of us know enough of our history. Mm-hmm. But, and this is where my question comes to the question. Is it less to do with knowing about our history and more to do with we're not able to shape our future? And that's maybe where this story is. It's less about the past. I think we can come to yeah. some common understanding. Yeah. If I may interject. I, well, I think William wanted to interject, right? Yeah. Give him the mic, please. <laughs> All uh, right. Yes. Yeah. Be easy on me, William.
3: Well, I think it goes back to, and, and this is probably something that encompasses everything that's been spoken about. There's never been any reconciliation in this country. Barely, no. But this is another
1: thing. It's like, because it's so PC and so glossed over, like I said, people have to go elsewhere. But sometimes, you know, they get it from like their dad or their racist ammo or whatever. And then they just end up regurgitating, not regurgitating, but like, you know, kind of passing on those really not so accurate, not so great things. And, and yeah, I do get that some people are pissed off that, oh, this thing wasn't mentioned, this massacre wasn't, this glosses over that. But, and I do think we need to have these discussions and they're very painful discussions to have. And I think Munahalla and Beit Beirut tries to do that as much as she can with the limited resources she has. But, Yeah, when we don't and we have to like venture out and get them, sometimes we get really good stuff and we learn a lot more. But sometimes I think we ended up, you know, just getting one side of the story and not the other. And it doesn't always work out. So, yeah, we need to have something much larger
4: than that. But
0: yeah, let's give Sam permission for a few seconds and then we can (laughs) wrap it up. So it's
4: like um, when um, the lady from the public source was here. Uh, Lara. Lara, 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 yeah. Bitar, yeah, yeah. Lara Bitar. Yeah, She was, uh, she, she, you know, the whole hoopla about her was because she wrote an article about it, right? And um, the information's there, just like our history, the information's there. It's just not commonly mm-hmm. participated in. And I feel that is part of our biggest problem here that we don't know it's not that our history is not there. It's just, mm. we are we are not taught to, or uh, geared towards trying to understand that history or accepting it and reconciling with it, or even accepting uh, the public spaces that bring us together. Or like uh, one of your guests talked about public um, transport, how that reduces you to just about being any common person and, getting to know anyone you know getting to know each other I think we're missing that mm-hmm. uh, we're missing that we're all, always on in party mode we're always uh, the next thing mode we're always in the uh, we, we, we want the change we, we talk about being against corruption yet we forget how corrupt and lack of um, how rigid we are ourselves even in our partying mode
0: And I think the opposite is true. The the, the guest that mentioned it was Albert Costagnan. Yeah, he talked about his dream for more public institutions, including public transport. He carefully avoided the topic of they still all get paid. (laughs) (laughs) They're all getting paid. There's trained staff that get paid a monthly salary. And I think both can be true. And also that I grew up in (laughs) al Khayat next to... up on the incline. Mm -hmm. You saw what happened, right? That park, that huge park, disappears overnight. No one cares. It's gone. It's completely gone. That's public space. But that's destroyed now, in the Mm -hmm. last few years. It's a giant parking lot today. I, I just don't see... I see shaping our future, really, as something that's essential, and we don't have that. I think if we had that, less of the degradation and more of the aspirations of urban planners would have come true. Mm-hmm. I really believe that. You, want, you wanted to say something? Last words, last words, and then we wrap up.
3: But certainly, certainly knowing about our history, you know—you talk about a lack of um, kind of a loss of that, that nostalgia or that pride. Knowing about our history of this place helps create that pride which helps shapes the future. And I think, I think you talked about knowing the past to talk about the future. So I think that there is something there. I think, it is, I think they are connected. Um, but yeah, just a comment, sorry.
0: I hope they are. I hope they are. And I'll wrap it up by saying something to you, Muhammad. Uh, what makes me really happy, maybe in a way also nostalgic for a few years ago, is that in 2008 or 2009, You're 12 or 13. Mm. You're looking at me wanting to learn from me. I never imagined 15 years later, I'd be learning everything from you.
4: Thank you. And
0: Mm -hmm. I think the roles have finally shifted the right way. I hope the journey serves you better than it did for me. I have the same love deep down. I survived one semester of urban planning, not four. Mm -hmm. So you did well. (laughs) I moved on to history, but it's the same terrain as you said. It's the same story on that note thank you for spending two and a half hours with me thanks to the audience as well thank you the the questions really shaped the episode at the end so i really appreciate all the questions i highly recommend two things watch muhammad on mtv podcast Mm. we talked about al khudur mosque we talked about Heb. a love affair with fujab two different in different ways Yeah, Yeah. yeah. yeah urban transport and if you can, check out our earlier episode, because we went really deep in storytelling. Mm. Not just Kat and Tina, not just trains and trams, but really urban planning. I enjoyed that episode immensely. Thanks. And he brought a gift oh, yeah. on <laughs> the episode, a giant map <laughs> yeah. of the 1950s. Yeah, 55, I think. 55, a yeah. Beirut that's unrecognizable in terms of transport. Yeah. So I, I have that map still. It's the mm-hmm. background of my podcast. It used to
1: be on the table.
0: It used to be on the table. Yeah. Now it's on the wall where yeah. it should be. So, guys, next week is Remzi Abu Ismail. He's the political psychologist on Instagram. It's going to be about identity, also about history. I promise you there will be some friction in the that episode. That's a guarantee. And follow Muhammad on Instagram. No, don't follow, <laughs> follow him on me Instagram. Follow him on Twitter, I guess. Follow him on Twitter. Is that fine? Okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> no, Instagram is very private, so. Oh, it's private. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Your Twitter is private, too? No. Follow him on yeah, Twitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and check out his, recent, his upcoming articles in the Washington Post. Thank you. I'm sure <laughs> they'll be fantastic. Thank Thanks.
1: You. Thank you, sir. Thank you.